Beer, Cheese, and Murder is a true crime podcast about Wisconsin from Wisconsin. Due to the nature of true crime, this podcast contains explicit and graphic content which may not be suitable for all listeners. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to Beer, Cheese, and Murder. I'm Erica, and joining me, I have Bonnie, Dina B, Jilly Z, <laughs> Kayla Z, Harry P. <laughs> <laughs> Dina, you started something on this one. <laughs> Felt like mixing it up a little bit today. I've had a couple glasses of wine already, so just preparing. Oh boy. Well, it'll be a good episode then, right? All right. It has always it has been a while since we did this. I kind of it sure has dropped off a while. No, I have people actually asking me if there are more episodes and because they haven't had any notifications that new ones are loaded yet. So yeah. our fans want us. I know. Well, it's it's it makes me feel all warm and fuzzy that people are actually listening. <laughs> yeah. No. I've had a couple of requests, actually, and I got an, another new listener today. Yeah. We've had more people following on Instagram. And so every time somebody starts following, I'm like, man, I really need to schedule something to do. <laughs> it's a lot of work for you. The rest of us just yeah. show up and eat and comment. Exactly. Oh, exactly. And I mean, obviously the holidays were busy and then um, work just as busy right now with the relocation. It's finally starting to level out, which is good, but it was definitely a rough couple of weeks. Um, I actually went to the dentist on Monday and I was like, they're like, is there anything that you want to talk, like you're worried about? And I'm like, I feel like I have holes in like my molars or something. Or like, that's how it feels with my tongue or whatever. And she's looking and she's like, no, you don't have holes. She's like, you know what you're feeling are wear marks. Like, are you grinding your teeth at all? And oh, I'm like, bruxism. I'm like, yeah, not that I know of, you know? And she's like, you know, I not, haven't noticed these before. Any changes at work? <laughs> you do it at night. Yeah. I have it. Oh, yeah. Like, Same. Well, yeah. So that's fun. Um, but yeah. I thought you were going to say how um, the dentist said you needed a crown and you were like, I know, right? <laughs> well, that was I know, right? Awesome. <laughs> the thing that was so funny is that that literally uh, showed up the day after I went to the dentist. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> my dentist just says my teeth are boring because they're healthy. <laughs> yeah, mine are too. And my dentist always has very nice things to say. He's like, you have such good teeth. Yeah. I love your enthusiasm. <laughs> Where are you? You're not at home. I'm at Nick's. Uh, oh. yeah, yeah, check on the shower curtain situation while we're at it. <laughs> <laughs> 
still no shower curtain, but no dead body either. <laughs> well, it's nice and white. Buy one and see if it disappears. <laughs> right? <laughs> there you go. Oh, man. All right. Well, what are we all drinking and eating today? Nothing special for me. I'm just having water. Oh, Bonnie. Uh, you put it up to me to start this and i've got Bonnie. so much happening there's so much happening today so as as all of you guys know not the listeners got my first trip to mars cheese castle this past saturday with jill <laughs> you were i can't believe i've never been there like, i've passed it a thousand times I which is exactly what the ad said it was like you've driven by thousands of times before today's the day we're like today is the day today is the day and i said i need to get some snacks for the podcast so that i had some wisconsin stuff so um otherwise i have some Merck's uh cheese spread and Merck's is a wisconsin company since 1950 so i eat that with my triscuits and then at Merck's, I got, or I'm sorry, at Mars Cheese Castle, I got some Wisconsin cheese curds, some Malcor's cheese curds from Appleton, Wisconsin. And they're not squeaky, but they're very, very tasty. And then I'm back with the old standby here for uh, my Naughty Girl wine. I just love this stuff. It's a very easy go-to. And that is from the uh, Von Steele Winery in Algoma, Wisconsin. It's very tasty. I love it. I actually have a bottle that I bought because you guys have been talking about it all the time. I um, bought one at the store just to try it out. I still haven't cracked into it, but it's going to happen. All right. It's sweeter than a lot of the wines that I normally would drink, but it's delicious. And that's why I've already had a couple glasses because it goes down <laughs> really easily. Well, and we are recording in the evening time for once. So yeah. not that people think we're recording on a Sunday afternoon and no. Dina's already a bottle into wine here. <laughs> <laughs> but anyways, um, are we cousins or what, Dina? Because look what i have for my standby excellent i'm, I'm holding same up wine. i know isn't that awesome my friend got me this little wine boa so i had to show you guys it because otherwise it just sits in my dining room looking very fancy and all dressed up and no place to go so that this is from my friend vanessa who listens to the podcast little but, shout uh, out to vanessa shout out so, okay. And then like Dina said about the Mars cheese castle and how Terry had brought up about the chocolate cheese and we we're all kind of grossed out about it. Yeah. But Dina and I got to try it. And I think Dina did, Zach yeah, did not, but I think kinds. Bennett, Bennett tried the other one, but otherwise you and I are the only ones that tried this. I ended up buying it, but it's called chocolate cheese fudge. And it says Kelly's Kitchen, manufacturing by Scots of Wisconsin, Sun Prairie, Wisconsin. Okay. Oh, wow. Um, and then on the back, it says um, Kelly's Kitchen Cheese Fudge with Havarti. Now, let me tell you, 
this stuff tastes like fudge. It's, it's the bomb. The weirdest thing. Like the consistency, the taste. I you would never guess that you are eating fudge. So Erica, I'm gonna send some home with you next week because I'm going out of town tomorrow. But um okay. yeah, and then I think we should do a little test and we'll have to get this cheese fudge and real fudge. <laughs> so there was, was that one. You can tell. Yeah, there was that one. She got the I clean one. Because it does not appeal to me. <laughs> well, you will be surprised because you'll be surprised. Dean and I were like, oh my gosh, you have got to be kidding me. This is cheese. So and then there's another uh, one yeah. that had nuts and it was like brownie batter. It tasted like brownies. Again. Literally delicious. Brownie. I was, I was floored at how good it is. Yeah, I gotta ask, like, where does it fall from, like, a calorie standpoint? Because, like, what what is the benefit of well, when it comes to cheese and dessert, calories don't exist. I was literally gonna say (laughs) that exact same thing. (laughs) It's cheese. I said the same thing to Dina as we were leaving. I'm like. I wonder how this compares with the like real fudge calorie wise. And Gina's like, yeah, I don't, I don't think that's going to matter. <laughs> it's like cheese. I mean, it's cheese. It's so, going to have calories regardless. Yeah, well, right. So, but I mean, like, I mean, a lot of calories regardless. Healthier for you. I w- you would think so because there's probably not as much sugar. I don't know. I was thinking the same thing. There is no um, calorie count on this. <laughs> Huh. which is probably <laughs> done on purpose. Yeah. <laughs> There's so, not one on my cheese curds either. So yeah. And then it does say um, from the Mars cheese castle, bringing you quality cheese and meat since 1947 here on Mars, the customer is always King. So there you have it. Glad we stopped at the old Mars castle. I love the pics. <laughs> Well, I have nothing exciting to share over here. Just some boring French wine and some popcorn because that's what I was craving. So (laughs) sorry, guys. (laughs) I'll use you, Terry. All right. I, for Christmas, got a Door Peninsula Winery Wine Club membership. From Santa Claus and their little elves. (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome. So I am drinking tonight the Sinless wine. And Sinless is the perfect example of combining something well-established with something more recent to achieve an entirely new and exciting result. A 50-50 combination of Frontenac Gris and Sauvignon Blanc. Sinless is a flavorful and refreshing white grape blend. And I can attest to that. It is very refreshing. And I bet, like the chocolate cheese, it probably has no calorie count. (laughs) Uh, I'm sure it does. I'm sure it does. But the interesting thing is the Frontenac Grease, the grape that's part of this wine, is 100% Wisconsin Ledge AVA grown. Wow. 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 That's neat. Yeah. Yeah. And Kayla, don't your your friend is actually the manager of Door Peninsula, right? Yes. Is that one in um, Sturgeon oh gosh, Bay? 
Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, right. that's like our go-to, Kayla. So maybe you need to hook, hook us up here with that manager. <laughs> hook a sister up with a discount. Because I will be every podcast drinking one of their wine. Yeah. So free advert. Well, it wasn't free, but free advertisement. Sponsorship. <laughs> Sponsorship money. <laughs> that's awesome. Uh, okay i mean honestly if naughty girl uh wines doesn't start sending me some based on how much of it i drink when i'm on the podcast i mean they're doing something wrong <laughs> like not listening <laughs> yeah like not listening that's wrong i'll be that's listening naughty. to us we have very important things to say all right so i'll uh wrap this up um so i am drinking another mob craft brewery beer so i have done them a couple of times uh already but i actually got a gift card from my employees for christmas so i figured i'd take advantage of that um so i'm drinking too legit to wit which <laughs> is an unfiltered belgian style wit beer or wheat beer it's an easy going with a smooth finish and subtle notes of fruit and spice and it's pretty mild with a five percent abv but it's good for a, a weeknight when you're hosting a podcast and don't want to get schnockered um, i like wheat beers <laughs> Yeah, I'm wheat beers are probably more Sean style, but this one actually is going down pretty good. So I can't really complain about it. But honestly, it got me by the name. I saw the name on the menu and I was like, can I get this one? <laughs> um, so that's the main thing I got there. And then I already ate my snack, but I had some extra sharp cheddar and 10 years aged cheddar so crumbling falling apart cheddar and it's from cheddar heads cheese company so i just picked that up at the grocery store but in their little gourmet cheese section but this where is that located i tried looking it up and i was having a hard time actually finding the cheddar heads cheese company mm -hmm. um the closest i got to possibly being the correct place is lacrosse wisconsin but it is a wisconsin made um, product because it's got the little symbol on it that says proudly wisconsin made so you know it's from wisconsin when it's got that symbol on it so it's always a safe bet if that's what you're going for but all right well i think we've talked about food and beverage enough so i'm gonna dive right into our wisco fact so as we are recording this episode, we are in the midst of the Winter Olympics. So I selected my Wisco fact accordingly. Milwaukee, Wisconsin is home to the Pettit National Ice Center and indoor ice skating facility. It is one of only 30 indoor 400 meter ovals in the world. It is the sixth oldest uh, having opened January 1st in 1993, so it's 19 years old, and it is an official oh, U.S. Wow, oh, that's yeah. crazy, because I, wait, that 93, that's, that's 20, oh, sorry, 29 years old. I was going to say, I was that gonna say wait, I've right. been in my house almost 19 oh years. Oh, my God, we're all it was definitely not brand new when I moved in. I was like, what? Yeah, that's 29 years. Good math, though, Erica. Have another beer. 
Uh, yeah, can you tell I'm an engineer? <laughs> I graduated high school in 1990. I wish that it was only 19. No, I wish it, was it only feels like it feels like it should only be 19 years. No, and I did, when I was thinking it about it, I was like, I had a birthday party there, like when I was in like grade school, and I'm just like, yeah, it was more than 19 years ago. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, but anyway, okay, so it is 29 years old open January 1st 1993 so it's the sixth oldest of the ones that exist within the world it is also an official U.S. U.S. speed skating training facility and some of the Olympic gold medalists who have trained out of there include Bonnie Blair and Dan Jansen as the ring's first skaters and I believe Jordan Stoltz from wisconsin has also trained out of there and i think he's got a big race coming up on the 12th so this coming weekend as we're recording when this comes out it might actually have already happened but it's coming up so that is one tie and one fact from wisconsin related to the olympics also, I will say the Pettit um, has a walking jogging track that it goes around the um, outside of the ice rink. So it's indoors, right? Mm-hmm. But then the walking jogging track goes around the ice rink. And it's great when it's, you know, 20 degrees outside and I still want to go for a nice long walk. But what's, what's crazy to think about is like when I go to walk in there, even though I'm inside on the walking track, it's like really cold out. So I still have to wear gloves and a hat because you're in an ice rink. <laughs> so normally I go if it's like under 25 degrees outside. So, but yeah, it's hey. nice. What's Can the I make a fee? Little... I sorry. Think, I'm sorry, Jill, what? I think that, oh, it's I like want to say. Bucks. Yeah, yeah, it's it was like bucks. just a few oh, bucks or said... something. I thought you said, what's the feet? Like how many, cause oh, I was going to say oh, I think no, five, or, five or six laps for a mile or something like that. No, something. no, just the money. Cause I think they yeah, yeah, just yeah. pay a couple bucks or something. Right. Okay. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, so on the topic of the Olympics, I got a little giggle because um, to the listeners last weekend, the family, we all went away um, and had a weekend, just kind of a weekend getaway all together. And at night we were watching the, we had the Olympics on and I, we had some cocktails and we were watching, um, snowboarding and most of these people were really exciting and they're flipping all over the place. And I was like, wow, these are really cool. And then somebody had their like performance or whatever. And I found it very boring. And I was like, wow, like that was really boring. Like get over it. Like that was dumb. And then. I kind of giggled to myself as I'm sitting there with no ability whatsoever, sitting on a couch, drinking wine, watching the people at the Olympics and deciding to like rip on them. (laughs) And then a meme came up the other day and it says Olympic skier does the most amazing thing I've ever seen in my entire life. Announcer. Oh dear. That'll be a point reduction. Me watching covered in Cheetos. Yeah. You got to land that. (laughs) And totally laughed because i was like yeah that was so me i was like oh yeah that was like really boring that was like a really lame performance doing flips and everything i can't snowboard so i had a good giggle at myself because 
I can't do that stuff. And yet here I was judging Judgerson with my cocktail. Well, anyway, <laughs> the main part of the episode is next up. So who's ready to talk about some murder? Me, me, me. I'm ready. All righty. So getting back into the groove of it, we are kicking things off in the new year. Talking about the Milwaukee North Side Strangler. Oh. Hmm. I don't know if I know this one. Was that like, um, oh, what is that little area that's known? Like the neighborhood area on the north? No. Never mind. Capital Center? Capital Court? No. No, this is a different area than if it's on the north side. Okay, sorry. No, no problem. All right, so let's get into it. In May 2009, while re-examining the cold case murders of seven prostitutes, the Milwaukee police learned via a DNA analysis that all of the killings were committed by a single perpetrator. Wow. A serial killer had been at work in Milwaukee for years undetected. While the DNA and the cases matched each other, they had no identity to go along with that match. So their database didn't have a match to the DNA. They just were able to link them to each other. Suspicion during the investigation fell on Walter E. Ellis after his name came up in connection to several of those homicides. Further investigation discovered that the Justice Department was missing saliva and blood samples from Ellis that should have been collected while he was in prison in 2001 due to a law instituted in that same year that declared that all convicted criminals were to give DNA samples. It should also be noted that what he was in jail for at that time was for beating his girlfriend with a hammer. Fabulous. Oh, oh my gosh. Well, great guy. So nice. Um, but supposedly his samples were lost on their way to the forensics lab. So there was a gap. You're talking eight years later, they find out that his DNA should have been collected and never was. And he, his name is coincidentally popping up in several mm -hmm homicide investigations. So once the missing DNA sample was discovered, Ellis was ordered to give a sample, but not surprisingly, he failed to appear at the police station for which they are issued an arrest warrant to kind of bring him in and get it. The warrant allowed for the police to enter and examine his apartment. So he was on the lam, if you will, which is that's L-A-M for those that don't know. <laughs> Jill and I are so on the same page tonight. <laughs> for sure. So he was on the lam, but the warrant allowed for them to enter his apartment and examine the contents inside. So they were able to take a toothbrush from there that had some dna on it and use that to get their dna sample 
Within a few days, his DNA was matched not only to the seven cold cases that initially brought suspicion to him, but two other homicides as well. So a total of nine murders that occurred between 1986 and 2007. Wow, that's a long time to be out there killing. There are certainly more than the nine yeah wow very likely all right so they found their man but they hadn't literally physically found him so he was identified through the dna sample on the toothbrush that they collected from his apartment but they still hadn't actually tracked him down so the hunt was on After his car was spotted in Franklin, Wisconsin, uh, he was tracked down to one of the city's motels where he was staying with his current girlfriend at the time, who was from out of town and apparently very clueless as to what he was truly like. Um, And so this is about, uh, I think the, the arrest warrant was issued in August when they made the match, got the DNA sample and made the match to him. And he was arrested in September. So he was on the, on the lam, if you will, for about a month. So Ellis was arrested and taken into custody at the time of his arrest. Police also confiscated crack cocaine and a crack pipe from his possession. Wow. He, he liked to dabble in all things crime, and we will go through his criminal, we'll, we'll go through his criminal history. It's quite extensive. After identification and arrest of Walter E. Ellis as a serial killer, an investigation was launched into the missing DNA sample, and it revealed that he was far from the only criminal with a missing sample. Nearly 18,000 DNA samples were found to be missing from the state's data bank in September of 2009. Oh, no. Wow. That's a huge number. Yeah. Yeah, That's a big number. How many other potential serial killers were on the loose that never identified? Um, As of February 2011, the gap had been closed by nearly 50%, so one can only hope that they collected the remaining samples since then, Um, as well as hope that they're keeping on top of it. So that was the gap at that time. I'm really hopeful that it hasn't continued to increase as time has progressed. So... It should be pretty standard, I think, at this point for them to be getting DNA samples for anybody going into into prison. All right. So we know who our serial killer is, but what do we really know about him, right? So let's talk a little bit about Walter Ellis, how he got his start in life, and then also his criminal history, which I've alluded to being quite extensive. Walter E. Ellis was born on June 24th, 1960 in Mississippi as one of six children. In the mid 1960s, he and his family relocated to Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Okay, so first you said 86 was the first crime? Yeah. Okay, so 26, yeah. For the first known crime. For the first known, yeah. So I was, that's why I was just kind of. Well, first known homicide. (laughs) 
Okay. 26. All right. This way. He was a he was a early bloomer. Okay. They usually are. Yeah. Early on, Ellis exhibited signs of antisocial behavior. He acted impulsively and aggressively towards his peers, often assaulting his classmates and neighbors. He had a reputation as a local bully and was frequently disciplined. He dropped out of school in 1974 after completing eighth grade due to poor academic performance and chronic absenteeism. Wow. He was just 14 years old when his criminal history started off with a bang. He was arrested for robbery and attempted murder. At 14? At how old? 14? 14. Oh, Oh my gosh. But he was ultimately let go with a fine because he was only a minor. Wow. Wow. That's the 70s for you. (laughs) Well, I mean, let's be honest. That's kind of how it is now. We had the case about the UW one. Because he didn't have a criminal history, uh, the judge was lenient. Yeah. In the next four years, before he even reached adulthood, Ellis was arrested twice more for theft um, and also arrested for robbery in 1978, which landed him with a four year probation sentence. Started out and kept going with criminal behavior. Based on the murders tied to Walter E. Ellis, as we talked about initially, and actually we'll go into the details. Um, So I'm making this conclusion because I know the details of those homicides, but you don't. But I will say it right now that he is a sexual sadist. And what we know. I feel like we've had that term before. Was that Dahmer? Well, yeah, we talked was the, about was it. Yeah, we talked about it with the last episode. The UW yeah, rapist. That was it. That was yep. it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Although Dahmer was a sexual sadist as well. Yeah. Um, but what we know from the last episode where we kind of dove into sexual sadism is that sexual sadist disorder combined with antisocial personality traits, which were indicated in his early childhood already. Um make it difficult you know the actual quote was when combined with traits of antisocial personality disorder sexual sadism can be especially dangerous and difficult to treat so obviously dangerous if it leads to them actually becoming a serial killer pretty pretty obvious i guess there but i mean based on him with his behavior starting very early in his life in his childhood he was you know without somebody taking notice not that they didn't take notice but without action at an early age he's it wasn't going to bode well for him or anybody that comes into his path for the rest of his life so we talked a little bit about his very early um criminal history uh, but we're going to dive into the bulk of it now so um, before going into the details of the homicides that he committed so as we already know um walter ellis would go would continue his criminal antics well into adulthood uh, otherwise he wouldn't have been identified and arrested as a serial killer 
Um, in addition to the murders he would ultimately be tied to, he also had an extensive criminal history for other crimes. So we talked about uh, 1978 was where we kind of left off from his early years where he was arrested for robbery and given a four-year probation sentence. May 1979, he was arrested for drug possession, uh, but managed to get off with a fine by proving that the pharmacy sold him the drugs without a prescription. In May, that's um, back in the day, hey? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> wow. In May of 1980, he was arrested and charged with extortion, but was released due to a lack of evidence. And I'm going to just put it out there that it probably didn't help his victims that the extortion was of local hustlers and prostitutes that occurred while Ellis was trying to become a pimp. Oh my gosh. (laughs) So the police very likely would have considered such a case a low priority. So he got, he got off on that one. Uh, Various offenses over the next four years landed him in and out of jail He supposedly tried to work an honest job after being released in February of 1985, but that was short-lived, if it actually happened at all. October, uh, or sorry, September of 1985, so like six months later, basically, he was charged with extortion again. Um, But similar to the first time around, the charges were dropped when it was discovered that the victim was a prostitute. October 18th, 1986, he was arrested for disturbing the public order and attacking a police officer during the arrest, for which he was sentenced to seven months in the county jail. May 1987, he was arrested for theft and sent back to prison with a one-year sentence, um, but was paroled after nine months. November 1988, he was caught in the act of attempting to carjack, and he injured the police officer during the arrest and was sentenced to another two years in prison. At least, I mean, he's finally going to jail, but he's getting out way too quickly. Yeah, he's getting out relatively quickly. Yeah, it's very, very happy. So... Uh, January 1990, after release, Ellis joined a drug trafficking ring, the Brothers of the Struggle. Oh my gosh, this guy is really uh, getting around here. So after he joined the Brothers of the Struggle, he uh, got involved into the drug trafficking scene And in June of 1990, he was arrested for distributing drugs and was convicted in November 1990 and sent to serve his sentence in federal prison. So by this point, they're like, yeah, you've kind of been arrested for a lot of stuff. We're going to actually try to punish you this time and send you to federal prison. Yeah. I feel like federal would be easier sentence than state, though, because state has, like, a lot of the real bad guys. 
I don't know. I'm not sure how it worked. I mean, he didn't stay there. Federal's like white collar, like drug dealing, where state is murder. Huh. From what I understood, um, state prisons are like terrible, whereas federal prisons are like, I don't want to say cushy, but like they're more clean, more. Yeah. Ultimately, it didn't really make much difference. He didn't spend a whole lot of time there anyway. So he was released in May of 1992. Um, So he was charged, I think, for two years, but only served just just over one, it seems like. Um, So May of 1992 is when he was released. And then November 1992, he was sent back to prison for violating parole. Um, He was also ordered to attend a rehabilitation program to overcome his social issues and learn how to integrate back into society. Um, However, I'm just going to say that with his history, it's clear he never really was integrated into society. Yeah, it's not a matter of getting back into society. It's figuring out how to do it the first time. Yeah, he it doesn't seem like he ever really figure it out how to be a part of a group of people like with other people and not hurt them or try to con them or be a, do criminal things I mean it doesn't seem like he really knows any other way to live than to be involved in some sort of criminal activity um, December of 1992 so this is a month after he was released and ordered to be a part of that rehabilitation or halfway house program. He was arrested for leaving the halfway house without permission. However, he was able to avoid punishment by ratting out the rampant corruption that was going on at the halfway house where those there um, were able to just basically bribe the officials to come and go as they pleased basically getting out of the punishment of being there in the first place, as well as the benefit of the actual rehabilitation. So because he kind of did this deal at this time, it led to him being a police informant for the next several years. I mean, I don't know. Prime candidate, right? The next several years until he murdered somebody four years later. No, this is in... This is in 1992. He already started in 86. Oh, 86. Oh, geez. Yeah. I'm sorry. I was thinking 96. Oh, yeah. We're already way past the murder. All right. Yeah. Well, first one. Uh, First one. Yeah. That we know of. That we know of. Yeah. So First one they can prove was him. Yeah. During the next several years, Ellis repeatedly violated the conditions of his parole, but managed to avoid any consequences due to his status as an informant. Um, He was even arrested repeatedly during 1994 through 1995 for assaulting his girlfriends, uh, actually injuring one of them with a screwdriver. Oh. Oh, Oh my gosh. Yeah. Hammer screwdrivers. Hammer Hmm. screwdriver, yep. The hammer was 2001. Screwdriver was in the 94-95. And yet, even with that type of arrest record, he still remained an informant for the Milwaukee police. Oh, Oh my gosh. Come on. Um, December of 1997, he was arrested for attempted robbery and assaulting the arresting officer. 
um, but was only sentenced to five and a half years probation. Um, additional offenses over the next few months finally led to his exclusion as a police informant. They finally decided that he was a bad bet and they should cut ties. And I then, long enough. Yeah. I, I don't know. He never really stopped his criminal activity. All it did was give him, I think, more leeway to be a criminal because he right. got off. Um, just my two cents. Uh, August 1998, he was sentenced to three years imprisonment for reckless endangerment. Uh, he actually did serve his time and was released on July or in July of 2001. Um, so he actually did manage to spend a couple years in prison on that one off the streets. That seemed to maybe have some impact on his behavior. Uh, maybe he just got better at not getting caught. Um, it seems he managed to keep a low profile over the next few years, skating below the radar. Um, his final arrest occurred in September of 2009, where we kind of started off when a cold case investigation would link him to the unsolved murders of nine women. Jeez. And as we know, so clearly he's not, not a good guy. I mean, in addition to extensive, just miscellaneous criminal activity, like being a part of drug trafficking, um, theft, robbery, carjacking, or, you know, assaulting police officers, beating up his girlfriends, domestic violence, um, you know, but the core of this case is that he actually did kill women um, and got away with it. And it's it's kind of reminds me a little bit of the story when we covered Jeffrey Dahmer, where it was like, how did he have these this like all this attention to a certain extent from the police and still not get caught? Yeah, you know. Um, and as we kind of talked about initially, the murders that he was linked to spanned, the known ones spanned from 1986 through 2007. So it's quite a long period of time. A lot of times they're very charming. Yeah. Which is how they meet a lot of their victims, which is how they get <laughs> away with it with the cops a lot of times, which is why their neighbors don't know things are happening. Yeah. You know, Jeffrey Dummer's just one example of that but scary so you know all criminals don't look scary no right that's the scary part and i remember um talking about that actually with jeffrey dahmer is that when they were first putting his picture on the news back then when he was first arrested my girlfriend jill was like you know he wasn't a bad looking guy. I mean, of course, now you look at him and you probably, yeah. oh my gosh. But then it was just like, I'd probably talk to that guy at a bar, you know, which is exactly what you're saying, Dina, is that the the guy giving candy and looking friendly isn't, you know, um, or the guy- He's hiding in plain sight. Exactly. Yeah. He's, exactly, he's, yeah. yeah. 
Right. He's yeah. not the mean guy, mean looking, ornery. No, this is, he's going to get with kids. He's going to be the guy that you trust. Exactly. Yeah. So. It's going to be a guy that you're like at his apartment. He's a super nice guy. He might be an accountant or something. His shower curtain is gone. <laughs> I mean, it could be, Hello, Nick. it could be, a lot. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I know Nick's not a serial killer. <laughs> you don't know that until <laughs> yeah he could have gotten away with it i don't know should i ask him to submit a, a dna sample just in case <laughs> well he's well, gonna maybe be it's over again. shower curtain and see if it disappears again well, see see nick, also, <laughs> nick is smart he wouldn't leave dna behind well <laughs> his his dna is missing from when he was um a felon <laughs> yeah, right? yeah. Right. one of the 18,000 cases that went missing also that's kind of crazy to think that that collection of dna i think erica said was like in 2001 which is you know 20 years ago or as erica says 10 years ago um right. <laughs> but no seriously good like like 2001 for them to just start I, I know it's for a lot of legal reasons like there are reasons why they couldn't just collect that when people came into prison or for whatever reason they were started collecting it but like 2001 think about how many cases started getting cracked from this dna all these dna profiles coming into the database like it's crazy everyone at some point because there's there have been a lot they actually used i think dna to recently identify some of the um unidentified victims of john wayne gacy too they were able to finally put names to some of his victims wow yeah it's crazy um, but just a reminder for sketchy people out there just don't leave your dna behind and you won't don't know <laughs> we want yeah. them i know i'm just messing i want Whoa. them to be sloppy <laughs> you can have a girlfriend that comes over to your house you're missing a shower curtain she still stays over she doesn't yeah, mind. yeah exactly. a dead body wrapped up in that she doesn't know she's still there <laughs> oh my god i'm like nick why do you keep your hairbrush and your toothbrush locked up in a safe right, locked away <laughs> when i'm over so why i can't collect any dna shower curtain <laughs> why, why do you always bleach your clothes <laughs> Oh, anyways. <laughs> oh, we're being awfully mean. Okay. Um, so as mentioned, his DNA was actually linked or tied to the cases of nine women, but he was ultimately only charged with the murder of seven. So those seven women were Deborah Lynn Harris, who was 31 when she passed away. Oh my um, gosh. She was described by her friend Patricia Donald as a generous, loving person who deserved nothing but a bright future. And instead, she was strangled to death with a black and white handkerchief. Her body was dumped in the Menominee River. Are you going in order? Yes, I or am. Or just randomly? Okay. In order. So she was the first of Ellis's known victims meeting her fate on October 10th of 1986. Okay, so she was strangled. Yeah, Tanya Miller. Um, so just one day later, October 11th of 1986, Ellis would claim another victim. 19-year-old Tanya Miller was murdered and left to be discovered in a Milwaukee backyard. The crimes occurring 
not only close in time to one another, but also close in location and with similar MO as made Detective Bill Vogel suspect that a serial killer may be at work. But at that time, his superiors weren't ready to hear that. They did not want that term spoken, serial killer. Wow. Yeah, nope. It would take the cold case investigation, a DNA match, and 23 years for them to be ready to hear that. So you got to say, I mean, just based on being a crime junkie and, you know, people listening to this probably are as well. You don't just commit your first murder and then do a second one the next day. So got to assume that this guy had been working up to this. It's not, you don't do your first one and turn around and do another one the next day. It's just not how it works. Yeah. But the last thing the police want to name is a serial killer. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they want to avoid that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's bad. It incites public, you know, panic if yeah. that is in the news, but also at the same time, you want people to be aware if that's actually the case and make sure that you're handling it properly. Because as you'll see, by handling some of these cases and not making the connection to each other sooner, there were a couple of miscarriages of justice where innocent people were um, punished for crimes that they didn't commit. One thing too, before I move on to the next victim is I'll point out that when I was documenting and going through his criminal history, he did have an arrest on October 18th of 1986. So he was arrested about a week after these two women were murdered. Wow. Yep. What was he arrested for then? That one was obviously not a murder. It was, he was arrested for disturbing the public order and he attacked a police officer during the arrest. Oh, okay. Gotcha. I remember you alluding to that one before. Um, So Irene Smith was 25 when she met her fate at the hands of Walter Ellis She was found dumped in an alleyway trash bin on November 28th, 1992. There was evidence of strangulation and her neck had stab wounds. And while the stab wounds were a deviation from the initial two known killings, um, as they say, location, location, location. Her body was found in the same area where Ellis lived with his mother at that time. Um, And she would ultimately be only one of many victims to be discovered in that area. So he literally stayed close to home. He did stay close to home and he had his hunting grounds, if you will. His own backyard, literally. Florence McCormick, um, she was 28. So workmen doing repairs on an abandoned house found 28-year-old Florence McCormick on April 24th, 1995. She had been left dead in the basement of the house, her wrist tied with rope and secured to a wash tub sink. She was a mother of two. 37-year-old Sheila Farrier was also discovered in an abandoned house. Um, That discovery was on June 27th, 1995. So this is just two months later. She was strangled, her bra wrapped around her neck, and she was the mother of five. 
41 year old Joyce Ann Mims was found in the closet in the abandoned house on June 20th, 1997. While she had bruising on her face and chest, the autopsy would reveal that she had passed due to manual strangulation. Oh. And at the time of her. There was a lot of strangling. That was his MO. Yeah. Also, there seemed to be a lot of abandoned houses. Yeah, well, these people are being found in. I think it's, it's the north side. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, but I don't know. I mean, you find something that works and stick with it. Yeah. Well, and uh, is this the '90s? I think you said, isn't that when the housing? Yeah. Yeah. So maybe so many things were foreclosed on then, and the housing crisis. Yeah, it could be. Yeah. Well, and when he did work, he picked up odd jobs. So I mean, he was probably working familiar with those houses yeah yeah um at the time of her death uh mims or joyce um had been dating walter ellis's uncle so so they were acquainted it's probably one of the cases in which his name popped up um joyce's son has said that she wouldn't have gone into an abandoned house with a stranger regardless of the circumstances so, you know, crime of opportunity. Yeah, that just kind of seems like if someone tried to lure me to an abandoned house, I right. hope I'd be smart enough to go, hmm, this is odd. <laughs> yeah. I don't care if you tell me there's a puppy in there. I'm not going. Oh, puppy I'd go right. for, or a bottle of wine. But, you know, aside from that, I'm just kidding. <laughs> puppy or a bottle of but wine if says, $25. If wanting to show you the house because he thought it was an awesome rehab. Would yeah, do? I would definitely step in there and I would go, oh, you is that a shower curtain? You would. <laughs> you say, wait, let me find three of my friends and we'll be back to look at it. <laughs> Lesson learned, Kay. <laughs> oh my gosh. No, I was listening to um, Let's Not Meet podcast earlier and it's like all these weird stories and there's one or or like close encounter type stories where people feel like they kind of brushed up against a potentially dangerous situation and managed to to avoid it if you will um so basically this guy just reads a bunch of people's stories that they write in with and one of them was a woman and her boyfriend I think they probably were teenagers at the time were going to a bunch of different houses like around Halloween and they came up to some like guy's house and he seemed very like sketchy but like he kept being like oh let me just show you the backyard and she's like I didn't want to be rude so I was just like okay and then he was like let me I the living room's ready let me show I can show you what I have in the living room and her boyfriend was like let's just go and she's like no yeah. we, we don't want to be rude we can't, he's gonna see wow. you running away and then I'm just like all I could think of was my favorite murder and the phrase that's fuck politeness like you, if it's a yeah, sketchy right. thing situation get out of there like screw being nice See, this is where people like me stay alive because yeah. i'm okay with being like nope sorry yeah. not, going. Yeah. not gonna do that bye jill was like no let's bye. just go i'm like no we're not going yeah that's it done lying in the sand i'm, I'm okay with you. being a bitch yeah. i'm okay with being a bitch it's kept me alive this long <laughs> <laughs> all right so the last 
victim getting us back on track here that he <laughs> was charged with the murder of um and i might say this wrong so i apologize in advance i'm going to try and say it the best i can his last known victim for the murder that he was charged with was 28 year old quithrian stokes um so on april 27 2007 Milwaukee police discovered the body of 28-year-old Quithrion Stokes. She had been violently raped and strangled to death with her clothing being partially ripped off of her. The murderer had strangled her with his bare hands. Hmm. But Quithrion had put up had put up a fight and while it didn't save her life she managed to wound her assailant sufficiently to ensure a blood sample had been left behind on the can of pepper spray she had attempted to use to protect herself so that was actually what had ultimately been the dna that tied him to the crime wow she probably saved countless lives just being able to actually get a piece of him in a time that DNA was available. Right. And good mm-hmm. enough at this point. Mm-hmm. Wow. Because he was probably wising up to not leaving DNA behind, at yeah. least through other means. And she managed to to cut him or get blood out of him. I'm surprised that he would have been strangling with his bare hands at that point, just because of epithelials and things like that, that they can actually get off bodies now that they didn't used to be able to get. Depends on how, I don't know how, I don't want to say how smart he was, but how much he paid attention to or knew about DNA evidence collection. I mean, yeah. A semen sample seems pretty obvious in terms of DNA, but you may not necessarily think about something so microscopic as epithelial DNA or trace evidence that's left behind. Um, that and me, you know, I probably wasn't really thinking much while committing the crime, other than you know, the, just getting that that rage out. And as we know about sexual sadists they take the pleasure in the harm and the fear and so i think by doing i mean doing it with your bare hands it's just like up close and personal and so i mean it's probably was more about the getting what he needed um if you will in the sense of what gave him i mean i it's almost uncomfortable to talk about what gave him pleasure um, he needed to to be have that kind of close close personal contact. Mm-hmm. The face to face strangulation. That's mm-hmm. what he does. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty. That's yeah. Uh, and while he wasn't charged for the murders of these next women, I'm going to talk about. Um, he when his DNA was finally collected, it did tie him to two other murders as well. So these are the two that in addition to the seven he was charged with get us up to the nine that I had mentioned previously. So Karen D. Kilpatrick, she was 32. So on October 13, 1994, a 32-year-old Karen Kilpatrick's body was discovered in a trash bin in the same alley that the body of Irene Smith had been discovered two years prior. So again, location, location, location. Karen's 
uh, boyfriend. Comfort Curtis. zone. Yeah. 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 Um, Karen's boyfriend, Curtis McCoy, was initially charged with her murder, but was acquitted at a jury trial. So he managed to goodness. escape going going to prison. Oh my um, gosh. Yeah. And Karen, um, when she perished, was the mother of five as well. Oh my god, five. And she was the only second one with five. Wasn't there another the other lady had five too, right? Yeah, yeah. there was another one with five. Jeez. Um next one was his greatest deviation to mo um the body of 16 year old jessica Payne was discovered beneath a discarded mattress behind a vacant house on august 30th of 1995 and actually you know 94 95 that was right around the time when he was leaving bodies in abandoned houses so certainly fits that it was part. also right around the time of jeffrey Dahmer. Ugh, yeah um jessica had been raped and strangled and her throat was slit jessica was his only known deviation to his usual profile in that she was caucasian and she died from blood loss due to a slash to her throat rather than strangulation what is he african-american or is he, he is, white yes and he's african-american i okay. haven't expressly said it but walter e ellis was african-american and with the exception of jessica Payne, all of his known victims were african-american um women and um and they very rarely they deviate from yeah. their own race yes but, but black serial killers are not common, just like female serial killers are not common. It's most commonly white males. Correct. Either that or they're just better at not getting caught. Yeah, um, <laughs> that's, true. That's, that's possible too. Um, but also just so most of his, or I would say all of his victims are at least, if not proven to be at least believed to be prostitutes. I want to be careful with that because in a lot of cases when people are believed to be prostitutes that they kind of are often given that label um, without much justification. Um, but Jessica Payne, in addition to being Caucasian, she was a runaway. So it is possible that she could have been involved in that type of activity. So her race seems to be the greatest deviation to his MO. Um, but they also noted that with her throat being slit, you know, it's really kind of, the whole reasoning here kind of, I understand, I guess there's reasonable doubt, but it just sort of seems like semantics to me. So, um, but his DNA was found. His DNA was found. So there's a couple things going on here. So prior to the DNA connection to Ellis, another man was initially pinned for her murder. So Shanti Dean Ott was convicted of first degree murder for the death of Jessica Payne after a friend's confession linked him to the crime. Um, a friend's confession, not his confession. Um, so I think the fact that they had somebody in jail already, they didn't really want to go there. But then also to the fact that she was Caucasian and that she died technically due to the blood loss from her throat being slit, they, their, their thought was, well, maybe he just had sex with her and didn't kill her because apparently it was a semen sample that was the DNA 
match. And you, I mean, there are obviously signs of rape, but it's definitely hard to prove if the victim is deceased. Right. Wow. But it, but it's still, it's just like, I, I think one of his other victims had stab wounds to her throat. So to me, it's not out of the stretch of the realm of possibility that he slit her throat. Right. Uh, but wow. anyway. So the other guy, how long did he serve that was convicted? Um, I actually didn't put it in here, but I think that he was in jail for like 13 years. I think he may have eventually been um, released and possibly um, pursuing um, charges against the state for miscarriage. I have to, I'd have to double check the facts on that, but it's ringing some bells but he's not the only one that um, had some issues. So there is one more. So the initial DNA match uh, from when they collected his DNA in 2009 matched him to nine women. He was charged with seven of the murders. Um, but an additional DNA match in May of 2010 connected Ellis to the 1998 murder of Marietta Griffin. So 10th murder. Marietta was found strangled to death lying in a pile of garbage in a Milwaukee garage on February 17th of 1998. A man named William Avery was fingered for, uh, for the murder of Marietta. At in the relation time, to Stephen? I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> but it is kind of funny that, well, not funny, but it's interesting that the last name's the same. But I think it's just a coincidence. Um, so at the time of her death, Avery uh, operated a crack house near where Marietta's murder occurred. So, I mean, still not a not a nice guy, um, but not necessarily a murderer. Um, while no solid evidence could be found to link him to the crime, police instead arrested him on drug charges and sentenced him to 10 years in prison. I think they pursued um, charges against him for murder later down the road after he was already in jail um and i think they were able to do so through jailhouse informants but they're like you gotta take that with a grain of salt because a lot of jailhouse informants are just trying to lighten their own sentences so the dna well like with some of our other cases that we've discussed if they weren't able to actually prosecute them for the most serious crime that they wanted to, at least they're getting them off the streets yeah. and getting them yeah, you know, yeah. in jail, in prison for something when they yeah. know that yeah. they're not yeah. good dudes. I'd like to think they would have gone after him for the drug stuff with or without believing that he was a killer. <laughs> but um, at least, yeah, they did go after him to and, and got him off the streets for that. But the DNA match to Ellis led to the exoneration and release of Avery. And um, while he did do bad things and it made sense for him to be put in prison for the drug related offenses, um, his crime, at least from the standpoint or his case, at least from the standpoint of the murder um, and the charges therein was deemed a miscarriage of justice because they they went after him ultimately for a crime that he didn't commit <clears throat> but i would also say too that the 
the state kind of screwed up with the whole DNA thing with Walter Ellis because they should have had that. Should have had that on file. So, like I said, ultimately, justice took many years to prevail and in the end was fleeting. So following his 2009 arrest, Walter Ellis was convicted in 2011. Uh, not nearly long enough after his incarceration, Walter Ellis was diagnosed with diabetes and he died in prison from complications due to diabetes in 2013. Holy crap. Oh. Well, I mean, save the state some money. That's a yeah. shitty thing to say, but I guess that's karma. Still. I don't know. Yeah. No, I don't know. Seriously. I, think, I think for the victims of the families, though, I mean, they didn't even get the benefit of a trial because, like, I think he ended up pleading yeah. guilty. So, and it was, it wasn't like he gave them a whole lot of information. I, I don't know that there's ever really going to be that understanding of why he did it um, yeah. uh, even if he did again in a lot of these cases even if he did give them a reason why I don't think it would be we can't justify the way that they can so it wouldn't be satisfying in any way to know that answer anyway but I don't know but yeah but I, I think that it would have been nice from the victim's family perspective to see him punished more yeah, yeah certainly but I don't know that they'd probably be disappointed for him dying either. Right. So, I mean, at least True. if you hurt anybody else, they're not about to release him for good behavior or some bullshit like that. So one of the main reasons why I wanted to talk about Walter Ellis, I mean, obviously he is um, one of the one of the more well-known serial killers in Wisconsin history. Um, but there's also a connection to where I work with Walter Ellis. That's right. Are you around the neighborhood? <laughs> <laughs> well, well, not for long. Um, no, I don't know that we're particularly close to where he oh, lived. So that's not the connection. Operated. Um, but there is a connection with him and my place of employment, which shall not be named. Um, so while my company is currently in the middle of a major move and consolidation of business functions, this isn't the first time that it has happened in our history. So um, just a little bit of background at a high level. So at one time, there were a total of four plants or locations that my company had in Milwaukee area. Um, our headquarters, I believe, was P1 or Plant 1. And then the first manufacturing site, if I'm, I could be wrong, was P2. Our model shop is P3. And then our second manufacturing site, the one that we're currently in the process of moving out of um, to consolidate with our headquarters is known as P4. So Walter Ellis was actually hired as temporary help to assist in closing up P2 sometime around the 1979 time period. 
I forgot that you had told me this. How did you come across this? There's a a woman that I work with who was the one that he worked under when he was closing up the plant. So he worked for her. Wow. And she's been here that long and obviously it busted through the news and she remembered. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So I picked her brain a little bit ahead of this episode. (laughs) Um, But so he and one other individual were hired to do the job um, with the help and supervision of her um, that I mentioned. So she's the one that I think hired them temporarily and was supervising them as they helped to close down this plant for it to be consolidated or moved into a a different um, location. So in her words, the two of them worked their asses off and did such a good job with getting things packed up and shut down that she actually recommended them for permanent hire. Wow. Wow. So yeah. she didn't really get any creeps or bad vibes. Well, she, from was, she didn't fit his victim profile. Also, she say he had really like, strong hands or anything like that. <laughs> yeah, right. No, she didn't say that. But, he was probably um, trying to uh, make the the warehouse deserted, so it was an abandoned uh, area. So another dumping into- ground. Yeah. Yeah. Seriously. He's like, oh, that's a great closet over there that's empty now. Hmm. Oh <laughs> uh, yeah. So after P two was closed up, he was in fact hired on full time as part of our second shift maintenance and janitorial group or staff. Um, so he worked from what she told me, he worked at the company for about a year or two. So this would have been around the 1979 to 1981 time period um, before he either moved on to other opportunities or went to jail more than likely for any myriad of miscellaneous crimes. Um, so one thing I've noticed and that has become very apparent in the relocation processes that our company has a bit of a hoarding problem um so one of the ways (laughs) don't we all (laughs) yes hoarding bad employees i agree with that yeah no um so one of the ways in which this presents itself is in old desks and lockers being left with former occupants papers and things for years and in some cases decades no way. You mean like someone's desk, they leave like files in there and they don't get cleaned out for decades? Seriously. <laughs> yeah. No, it's, it's an issue. Yeah. It happens. Well, nobody, an if nobody else moves into that desk, then it just sits there. And yeah. Um, so anyway, so a few years ago, the company launched a 5S process. So 5S is a lean manufacturing term. It is sort, set, shine, standardize, and sustain. The whole idea behind a 5S is that you have the tools you need to do the job in the point of use and anything above and beyond the tools that you need to do the job are kind of like not there. So you're not, you don't have a bunch of clutter that is slowing down the job, if you will. Sure. So a few years ago, the company launched this 5S process and had a number of 5S events to clean out some of these, the old clutter and get rid of things that were unneeded. So lockers that haven't been opened in years, getting cleaned out and getting rid of all that garbage, literal garbage. Predecessor 
um, led my my team um, that I currently supervise or manage um, through cleaning out the set of lockers that they used at the P4 building. So we're again in the process of moving, so not using them anymore. But at the time, my staff used those lockers, and during the cleaning event, they came across a locker that hadn't been touched in decades, like. 30 years, if you do the math correctly. Um, the prior. <laughs> <laughs> so if you don't subtract 10 years. <laughs> the, the prior locker occupant was in fact, no longer with the company. So one of my employees who still works, who works for me currently um, was the lucky one to empty out this locker. Um, and he happens to be rather detail oriented and kind of the curious sort. Um, so as he began to pull things out, he tried to guess the kind of person who may have been the user of this locker. First, he encountered some old food and food wrappers, which again, 30 years, that's really gross. Oh, yeah. yeah. Nasty. Beyond I mean, you're talking probably petrified at this point. Um, um, so there's, you know, some known fast food places. So he's trying to figure out, you know. What kind of demographic are we dealing with? Who's the type of person that owned this lager? He also found a single red high-heeled stiletto type shoe. What? Was that sharp Mr. Ellis's locker? Lastly, they found a pile of company paperwork, which revealed the name of the locker occupant to be one Walter E. Ellis. Oh, Wait, wow. with the food and the stiletto? Stiletto shoe. One shoe one red stiletto oh a member don't they always say how people are yeah they like take their colors take a treasure yeah. Yeah, or whatever yeah yeah oh so, my well, okay this makes me think that instead of that um screwdriver hurting oh, the girlfriend i wonder if it was a stiletto heel well they probably had the weapon because i think she survived that attack oh my god and this whole time <laughs> i thought they were referring to orange juice and vodka I'm just kidding. Oh, Kayla. Only some of us. I don't even know where you're going with that. Uh, (laughs) I didn't catch that either. Okay. So um my my employee who is emptying out this locker, so he's seeing all this, but he had no idea who Walter Ellis was. So he just kept going until a different coworker kind of like let clued him in on to who who that actually was and so at that point he and the supervisor who also hadn't been aware of who Walter Ellis was um contacted HR and contacted our HR department and they bagged up all the contents and um for what we know HR coordinated with contacting the police and actually handed over the contents of the locker to the police department good so that's yeah. what I was going to say. I hope yeah. they did that just yes, for absolutely. purposes of having. Yeah, correct. Having yeah. It. I mean, it may not lead to anything, but you never know. So, um, you know, so I said, while this discovery occurred after his arrest and even after he had passed away, there is a chance of unsolved crimes that he may be tied to. And, right. Um, you and know, for any anybody that had a victim and they never found out who it was if they find out it was him that's all they need to know yeah yeah 
so the red stiletto certainly to me seems a bit damning as we kind of noted that it's not uncommon for serial killers to keep souvenirs um and kind of so the items collected may be used uh to help bring closure to other families and only time will tell the other thing i'll point out about that stiletto shoe uh being kept in a work locker we've talked about another serial killer keeping souvenirs in his work locker yeah oh yeah that was stomer his were body parts but it was still souvenir (laughs) (laughs) shoe body parts sandwich i mean you know yeah (laughs) none of it belongs in the locker instead of the stiletto we actually had the foot (laughs) (laughs) oh my god oh my god Uh, yes so in closing from childhood through adulthood walter e ellis led a life of crime occasionally getting caught uh, quite frequently getting caught and going to jail Um, and while i like to believe that people can learn and change there was clearly no hope for walter ellis the real question is what more did he get away with how many other women may have died at his hands? Seriously. How long ago was this clean locker clean out? Uh, If it was after he passed away, I mean, it had to have been what, maybe five, six years ago ish. Okay. Time. I don't know, roughly. So they've probably had some time to figure out some of this and may not have matched anything to him. I mean, but yeah, you have to assume that there's a lot more out there for victims which yeah. is sad really sad but it's also, even more sad if there's other people that were convicted that weren't actually guilty of those crimes yeah but i think the the reason why so many of them may have been unsolved is i mean especially during that time period because it even came up when we talked about jeffrey dahmer is that that type of victimology and that's partially the main reason why serial killers often go for that type of victim is yeah sex workers they're 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 easy they're it sounds really terrible to say it this way but they're easy target they're easy to victimize and police don't necessarily prioritize it because of the fact that they're living a high-risk lifestyle right 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 but most of them also, many of them, I should say most, many of them don't have any family members looking for them. They've cut other people off in their life. So they're literally alone with the exception right. of just a small amount of people in their life. So they're, you know, there isn't going to be somebody reporting them missing at that point mm-hmm. because they've already been missing. So easier to get away with. Nobody's investigating it right away until they find somebody. Sad. Yep. Well, that and two is if they are, in fact, prostitutes, you know, if they're not operating safely, there could be multiple DNA profiles as well. Oh, definitely. So. Certainly. Um, but. I mean, you mean they all don't end up at like pretty women? Right. Yeah. yeah I just all end up with Richard Gere. I just saw an ad for that um, musical is coming to Milwaukee soon. And I was just kind of like, okay, I loved the Pretty Woman too. Musical. <laughs> yes, musical there's a musical. A oh my gosh. Yeah. A sex worker and a millionaire. I know. And I was like, 
how did that, how did that, how was that such a good movie? Because <laughs> like, it's I don't Julia that ever really and happened. Richard Gere, that's how. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's true. All right. Sorry, um, I digress. No, but no. <laughs> so actually that is a good segue into our high note. It kind of brings up a little bit from the, the sadness of the case. So kind of you mean the high note wasn't that there's a pretty woman musical right (laughs) i mean i thought it was kind of a high note it is kind of a high note but it's not the one that i chose (laughs) so you could do worse in milwaukee i mean let's be honest i'm um i'm gonna tie it back to our wisco fact actually where we talked about the Pettit National Life Center and the Olympics. So our high note is that there are 18 Olympic athletes with ties to the Badger State that will be competing across eight sports for this Olympic. I know one of them. I just heard tonight the cross-country skier guy. He's like a 21-year-old from Wisconsin. So for- he's just 21-year-old skier guy you don't have any more information than that jill i do i don't but i'm sure erica is going to give us some information i just you wanted to say, show that my ears I'm, perked up you can't I say have, i know one of the guys he's some skier oh, no. guy no i know i'm sorry i don't know him i just know the sports of one of the people how's that because my ears were like oh wisconsin all right i'll shut up no, well, we you guys talked extensively about curling, and there are four um, members of the U.S. Olympic team in curling that are from Wisconsin. Whoop, whoop, whoop. It's what we're good at. Yay. Now there's a Wisconsin sport, Olympian sport. <laughs> it's a Girl beer drinking high sport. The Olympics so. for curling. There's John Schuster, Matt Hamilton, his little sister Becca Hamilton, and Nina Roth. And um, I did mentally noted and write it down but nina roth is um a mother and she is a nurse and it noted that she worked through the pandemic so and, and she had time to master yeah, a sport to be, wow yes. curling unbelievable awesome. and i haven't even finished cleaning out my basement <laughs> yeah exactly awesome <laughs> i work from home <laughs> There's also um, in the sport of hockey, there are six former and future Badgers. So I'll just note that they're not all originally from Wisconsin, but their connection to Wisconsin is uh, going to UW-Madison and playing for the UW-Badgers hockey team, the women's hockey team. Good enough. So we have Alex. Did you say women's? Women's. Women's hockey. Women's hockey. I assumed. I I saw the one, the goalie, the one goalie that was injured. Yep, there are these are all six are women's hockey. They were women um, badger, and I think just like our U.S. women's hockey team, maybe having a little bit better playing reputation than the men's. Same for I could be wrong. Maybe I don't pay attention, but uh, women's badger hockey could be a little bit better record than the men's. Mm-hmm. I don't. Know. I shouldn't say that because I don't actually know. But anyway, so these six uh, hockey players are women for the U.S. women's hockey team uh, and they're former and future Badgers. So you have Alex Cavallini, Brianna Decker, Hillary Knight, Amanda Kessel, Abby Roke, and Caroline Harvey. Wasn't Brianna Decker the one that was injured? Yeah, she was injured pretty early on. Yeah. 
And she was like their main, like the best player or something. Something, yeah. One of their top players, yes. But um, biathlon. Like broke her ankle or something. Yeah, some type of leg injury. Oh, I'd be so, I mean, you work so hard to get to the Olympics and that's when you get an injury. Yeah. Yeah. So sad. Um, biathlon, we have Deidre Irwin. Joanne Reed and Paul Schaumer. Now, is the biathlon the one where they what do shooting. the shooting? The cross country skiing and shooting. Talking about and wondering how I thought it was a yes. duathlon, it was called. That's the uh, 007 sport. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Cross country oh, yeah. skiing and and shooting. I always thought it was called the duathlon, but I guess no, biathlon yeah, makes biathlon. just as much sense. <laughs> Um, and then cross-country skiing, as Jill mentioned, is Kevin Bolger. So that's his name, that 21-year-old dude from Wisconsin. All right. <laughs> Thank you. You're welcome, Kevin. I mean, now I almost if know you're you. you're listening. Better. I was going to say, we feel like we yeah, know when you you're now. listening. <laughs> no um, longer known as just a 21-year-old dude from Wisconsin. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, ski jumping, we have Anna Hoffman and Ben Loomis. Snowboarding, Courtney Rummel. And then speed skating is Jordan Stoltz. So he's a 17-year-old, and he was a breakout star for the U.S. Olympic trials for long track speed skating, setting records in both the 500-meter and the 1,000-meter. So he's Where's he from? Us. Did Kowaska. he train at the Pettit? Kowaska, I he, wow. I think he has. Yeah, wow skated there i don't know if he necessarily yeah, probably yeah but okay. the the Kiwaskum team so, is wow. a metal contender who has the speed skating world watching so and i think um, cool. I read that it's coming up on the 12th so by the time this comes out it may have already happened but one thing too is a number of these um competitors in the olympics have already kind of gone through their sport and some of them haven't necessarily made it onto the next round but just the act of being so spectacular at a sport that you get to go to the olympics in the first place is notable in and of itself so see yeah. dina erica appreciates like just getting to the olympics exactly yeah. <laughs> I'm like, the olympics, oh my gosh that was so boring not being so judgy about somebody who does boring athletic ability on a snowboard as we lick I our mean. fingers from cheetos right? <laughs> honestly i just or these fudge I just appreciate people yes. that are so like exceptional at something. I mean, I like to think that I'm, I'm like good at stuff, like in some cases, even maybe pretty good, but like I dabble in too many things to be truly like amazing at anything. I feel like too bad there's not an Olympics for sarcasm because I could try <laughs> out. <laughs> I might, I might make the cut. I'd be yeah, close. there's a procrastination Olympics. Uh, oh, yeah, I'd be yeah, in on I'd, that. I'd make that. Oh, oh, yeah. Gold medal winner. <laughs> yeah. Gold medal, medal finalist right here. Well, I can definitely say that the procrastinating and getting things going to get another episode recorded. <laughs> <laughs> so, so Sorry, listeners. Anything procrastination. <laughs> oh. Man, well, it was Sorry, listeners, it's all Erica's fault. 
It was either that I was procrastinating or I was just choosing sleep instead of research. But hey, life happens. Like I told you before, life happens. So. Yeah, it's winter. It's the Wisconsin hibernation time. Yeah, exactly. That's true. That is true. But we'll definitely be trying to get back on track to do this more frequently. So until next time. Eat, drink, and be wary. for listening to Beer, Cheese, and Murder. We would like to also thank the references that make this podcast possible. A full list of references can be found on our website at beercheeseandmurderpodcast.com. Be sure to follow us on Instagram at beercheeseandmurderpod, where pictures from today's episode are available for your viewing. If you would like to share your feedback, Wisco facts, case suggestions, stories, or just whatever, please email us at contact at beercheeseandmurderpodcast.com. Don't forget to tell your friends, but most importantly, until next time, eat, drink, and be wary. Uh